Well, good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. You're hearing us on EWTN Radio, and thank you for joining both this program as well as all the other programs that EWTN provides. Uh, we're coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International in Central Ohio, and uh, it's a pleasure to be able to discuss Scripture with you each week in this program. What I do is invite some friends uh, who, uh, because of their background, uh, have uh, some love for Scripture, and, and particularly in this series, we're looking at Scriptures uh, that they never saw, verses they never saw. In other words, verses that uh, maybe they, they read in the Bible, maybe were well aware of, but didn't quite see or understand. Maybe they had a different understanding of them, but then by the grace of the Holy Spirit, they were able to see more clearly. And in the context of most of our guests, we're talking about verses that help them discover the beauty and fullness of the Catholic faith. If you've watched the Journey Home program at EWTN, there have been a few times when I've addressed this issue of the verses I never saw, once I talked about the early church fathers that I never saw. And in the Deep in Scripture program, what I'd like to do is invite guests to join us to talk about their verses that awaken them to the fullness of the Catholic faith and, and a deeper following of Jesus Christ. Our guest for this evening is Rod Bennett. Rod, is uh, he's been on EWTN a number of times. He's been on the Journey Home program. He is uh, uh, was an editor of a magazine called Wonder Magazine, a popular Christian media journal. His writings have appeared in other national publications as well, ranging from Rutherford and Gadfly to Cornerstone and Catholic Exchange. Recently, Rod has appeared on well-known radio and television, such as my program, Journey Home, as well as Doug Keck's Bookmark and Catholic Answers Live. His first book, Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Her Own Words, is a bestseller from Ignatius Press. Many, many times I've recommended Rod's book on the Journey Home program. Of all the converts that I've interviewed on Journey Home, maybe the most common reason that their hearts were open to the church, they mentioned the early church fathers. And then people say, all right, where do I begin in reading the early church fathers? And, of course, Jurgen's very large three-volume collection, The Faith of the Fathers, is an excellent, excellent uh, volumes to have in your library. But this particular book, uh, the Four Witnesses, in my mind, is top of the list for a great book, especially to share with a non-Catholic friend or a family member who is at least open to discovering the beauty of the early church fathers. This particular book by Rod not only is a great summary of four of the earliest apostolic fathers, both their lives and their teachings, but he connects it with his own journey into the Catholic faith. So I highly recommend that book. And you can find out, if you'd like to buy the book, you can go to chnetwork.org and click on CH Resources. You can buy it there, or you can go to EWTN's um, resources, uh, their bookstore online. They certainly feature this book. I want to remind you that Deep in Scripture is connected to a website, deepinscripture.com, where you'll find both Rod's biography. You'll find all of the archives, programs, ways to contact the Coming Home Network International, and you can find tonight's text. When I asked Rod to share a verse he never saw, well, he overloaded me. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. He, 
he gave some verses from Matthew and Acts and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Peter, which it, it admittedly is sometimes hard to decide which verse to discuss because all of them are important. But he chose for tonight a section of the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 16 through chapter 2, verse 1. And let me read those, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back, and Rod will join us. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there, as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. They celebrated Mass on two of the highest peaks in the Western Hemisphere, proclaiming the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. Father Antoine Thomas joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about the Eucharistic expedition to the summit. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm president of the Coming Home Network International, uh, and we're broadcasting from our studios in Central Ohio, and I'd like to welcome Rod Bennett to the program today. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Hello, Rod. Hey, it's great to hear from you. It's terrific to be on the show today. I'm not sure you had intended that I would let the whole audience know this, but you, I do want them to know that you were one of those that was displaced by that huge flooding in Atlanta a couple weeks ago. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the uh, in, the Lord in His providential grace chose to wipe my house off the map. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> but if that's His plan, then uh, I'm ready to roll with it. I'm hesitant to laugh at that, but I'm, I'm laughing at the way you put it. Let's let's say. What that. can you do? What can you do? You know, you have to be cheerful, and you have to uh, you like I say, whatever path the Lord sends you down, you have to pray for the grace to. Uh, to keep a cheerful spirit, and so far he's given it to us. There have been some hard times, but uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm happy for your concern. Pleased to hear you say what you're saying. Well, Rod, it's I've always uh, been really, as I mentioned during the break, uh, the first part of the program is that particularly your book on the four witnesses is my favorite book to recommend on the early church fathers, and uh, and I think it's been received well, hasn't it? Well, it has, and I, I do appreciate those recommendations because you've kept uh, that's kept some some sales trickling in. Even <laughs> now, we're six years or so down the road from having published that book. So you're doing your part in uh, relieving the Bennett family's financial distresses, and I appreciate it. <laughs> well, again, I'll remind the audience if you haven't read Rod's Four Witnesses, or maybe especially if you're not that familiar with early church fathers. Uh, uh, you can pick that book up, and it would not only help the Bennetts, but it would be a great enrichment to your own faith. And you can do that at any number of sources, including EWTN, uh, the Religious Catalog, Coming Home Network resources, CH resources, um, and I'm sure Amazon.com. Is that right, Rod? Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. All right, Rod, I asked you to give me a verse that you never saw, and you gave me a half a book. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know. Well, I guess that shows that I'm a big fan of Scripture. That's exactly right. Or else it shows that there's a whole lot that I didn't see and wasn't smart <laughs> enough to get, maybe. That's, that's it. Maybe. Well, if you if that's true of you, then it's true of me, too, because I, the, the list of verses I never saw, or at least didn't quite understand until after I became a Catholic, is getting longer all the time. Why this particular text from Second Peter? Well, this is a fascinating passage. This is one of those passages that, as an even, I think most evangelicals, they hit this passage, and there's a bump in the road. In other words, it flies very directly in the face of things that you're told almost in so many words as an evangelical, and therefore you have to go back to your authorities, to your pastor or leaders or whatever, and ask them how they explain this. Uh, for example, in another place, Peter says, baptism now saves you. Yep. Well, we're told straight up in evangelical churches that baptism doesn't save you, a flat-out contradiction of, this, of that particular passage. Uh, you know, in another place, uh, uh, well, there are several other places where, well, where St. James tells us that, uh, that faith without works is dead, that, uh, uh, that, you know, these are things that directly challenge and contradict something that you're told from your pulpit. And so when that happens as an evangelical, you have to go to your authority figures and ask them to... Uh, to help you get over the bump. In fact, well, let me let me read a verse from Second Peter earlier in this chapter and let you comment on that because sure, it seems sure. to me that chapter one verse four fits into that category when Peter writes, "By which he has granted to us his precious, precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature." Right. 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 Yeah, what did yeah, you do they, with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there is some head spinning stuff. I mean, the early Eastern fathers did an awful lot on the idea of divinization, the idea that that in a sense, when we when we become one with Christ, we become part of God because Christ is one with God, and that's a, a very very profound idea. And nobody's ever gotten to the bottom of that idea. 
but it's something that really is flies directly in the face of, of Luther's idea of snow-covered dung hills and all the rest of it. So it's definitely one of those bumps in, a, in the road. Maybe before we jump into the text, Rod, share with the audience a little bit more of your background so they know where you're coming from. Well, I was somebody who got a fairly solid, sound uh, childhood exposure to the Baptist Sunday School and all the rest of it. Uh, by the time I went off as a young man and joined the service, uh, you know, I was exposed to the temptations that most people are, especially young servicemen at that time. And so there was pressure on me to, uh, to you know, back away from my Christian faith or to find some other explanation for it or to find some way to reconcile the two halves of my personality. And I think I was falling away from Christian faith altogether at that point, but uh, by the grace of God, I encountered and was really moved by the books of C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. And starting out with his Narnia stories, with his uh, screw tape letters, these other things, and became this huge uh, devotee of C.S. Lewis. He brought me back to, first, my own Baptist faith. Then he led me to explore uh, something closer to Lewis's own faith, which was the traditional Anglicanism of, uh, of England. And then uh, uh, eventually C.S. Lewis led me to one of his favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, who was actually a Roman Catholic. And I was a little scared and a little frightened by all that to begin with, but uh, <laughs> the Lord led me to uh, love G.K. Chesterton so much that, uh, that Chesterton eventually, I think, led me all the way to the Catholic faith, but with a good deal of help from these four witnesses that I wrote about in my book. Yes, all right. And maybe they'll come up later in our conversation. Let's look at this passage in 2 Peter and dig into it a little deeper, because I notice that as we get towards the end where it dealt with prophecy, for example, that that is specifically an issue that arises in terms of private interpretation. But beginning in verse 6, go ahead, Rod. Sure. Like, like, the, like one of those other passages where Peter says baptism now saves you or uh, works alone, I mean, that we're saved by works, that Abraham was justified by works, things of that, which, which are direct contradictions of evangelical teaching. This one has a section in it that says no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. Yep. Well, emphatically, evangelical Christianity teaches that all Scripture is of private, script, uh, private interpretation. Now, they have got various ways to get over the bump, but the actual teaching is that Scripture is of private interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that essentially is the, is the entire meaning of evangelicalism as we know it today in this country, that uh, there's nobody that can get come between a man and his God. Uh, you open up the Bible, you let God's Holy Spirit uh, to, to explain to you what it means, and that's how you find God. And uh, uh, that, that, as far as I can tell, and then you go. It's your responsibility to go and either find or start a Bible-believing church. And uh, so to find a passage in the New Testament saying flat out in so many words that no passage of Scripture is subject to any private interpretation, you've encountered a problem. What do you do with that, right? In fact, let me ask you— well, let me ask you a question uh, uh, before we jump into this. I noticed recently in reading both Calvin Institutes and uh, the Westminster Confession that in both cases when they explain how to do private interpretation, when you find a scripture that's difficult, the answer is to be found in comparison to other verses. 
In other words, you, right. you, you always the find another verse. Forward. Is that your experience? Well, yes, it's the idea of allowing uh, the Scripture, what they would say, allowing the Scripture to interpret itself. In other words, you don't take a verse out of context. You don't try to deal with one verse alone. You go get a whole collection of verses, and then you synthesize them. Um, And that really is what is is the answer to the problem in their scheme. Since uh, Since evangelicals, God bless them, acknowledge no authority other than the Scripture, then they have to find other parts of Scripture and set them against the parts that are problem verses. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to make a, a cartoon out of this. Every system of thought, even the Catholic faith, has these kinds of bumps in the road. Yep. In other words, uh, you and I will be reading along, and, and we'll come across a passage where Jesus Christ himself says, in no uncertain terms, call no man on earth your father. Now, so let's, we don't pretend that we don't hit these bumps in the road, because every week we go to Mass and we call some man on earth our father. So uh, we've got the bumps in the road. Now, you and I would want to explain what, how we think that this apparent contradiction came to pass, and that's really what they do, too, in a passage like this one in in, uh, in Second Peter. But when you do that, when you step away from the verse itself, you begin to bring in other verses. Well, who told you which other verses to bring in? Yeah, there you go. In fact, uh, as was mentioned at our conference this weekend by Dr. Hull, when you're trying to make the decision, uh, trying to explain a difficult verse with a less difficult verse, who are you to decide which is the more difficult verse? Right. It might be only right. difficult because it doesn't agree with where you are right now. And for somebody else the less difficult verse may be the difficult verse, and they use yeah. what you consider the difficult verse to explain it away. So again, private interpretation. Right, and who, whoever, now in practice, in practice, none of us evangelicals ever believed private interpretation strictly. We, we believed it as a, as a catchphrase or a dogma, sort of like liberty, equality, and fraternity, or all men are created equal or something. It was something that we held on to and liked to feel good about ourselves in identifying ourselves with it. But in reality, all Christians have some kind of magisterium. In practice, almost all of us, the sane ones anyway. Now, there are a few of us who come a little unglued and and try to take literally the idea that that we personally are the magisterium. I, uh, not too long ago, I had uh, friends come to me and start talking to me, challenging the idea of a New Testament priesthood, such as we have in the Catholic Church. And they said, well, the New Testament clearly teaches, the Bible clearly teaches, uh, the priesthood of the believer. And I told them, well, I believe in the priesthood of the believer. That is an Old Testament and a New Testament co- uh, concept. What I don't believe in is the popehood of the believer. <laughs> right. <You> know, <laughs> I don't believe in the infallibility of the individual believer, and I don't think that hardly any Christians believe in the infallibility of the, of the individual believer. My guess there is there are that we... a few who try to pretend that they believe in it, right. that the Holy Spirit teaches me and I need no man to teach me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But these are the kind of kooky Christians that most evangelicals uh, don't like to be around either. And I'd guess, Rod, that when you were a Baptist, that you would also have balked at the idea that you were following some kind of tradition. Absolutely, and yet at the same time, I remember very consciously when I would come to a difficult passage, I would think to myself, well, what do they say at Dallas Seminary about this? Mm-hmm. Or, and you know, everybody's got some other authority, but my authority was Dallas Seminary. 
Well, a good example of that also, which would be more common, is that you run into a verse that, let's say, calls God Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, um, you know, as it says the, 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 in early Second Peter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And right. if you were wondering, well, how do I fit knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, how do I understand that? You would have interpreted that within the tradition of Trinity. Exactly right. Exactly right. If I had been within the tradition of Arianism, I would have seen this as a proof of Arianism that the, that that God is that Jesus is not God. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is one of the verses that Arianism used to uh, demote Jesus to a kind of less and lesser created status. All right, so, well, but if you're if you're part of that tradition, yep. you read it in the light of your authorities that you recognize. Although you may deny that you have any tradition, but you do have a tradition, and that's right. Hard, it, it, when somebody, well, again, when somebody actually tries to act as if they are themselves an infallible magisterium, uh, they usually come unglued. Yeah. They usually become people who all Christians realize are either pompous jerks or uh, <laughs> or a little unhinged. Now, we've all, all types of Christians have met people like this, but most of us are saner than that in, in all churches. Most of us know that we have a magisterium. That is, we know we have a recognized authority, a teaching office, people we trust that we go to when we hit a difficult passage. All right, let's, with that as the background, let's look at our passage that you've chosen for us tonight. Um, and, uh, you know, it's yours. Rod, where would you like to begin in this passage? Well, this verse, uh, I, I read over it, of course, and heard many of the evangelical uh, attempts to say, well, when Peter says it isn't a, any private interpretation, he means this, or he means that. It doesn't mean what it seems to me, um, that there's some, I mean, because after all, what is the alternative? If it's not of a private interpretation, then it must be what? A public interpretation. If there's a public interpretation, which I think he does mean, then somebody is in authority somewhere. <laughs> somebody is the public authority that gets to interpret. And, but of course, we, we had trouble with that idea. Oh, yeah. So implied in this passage is, this is one of the, in a sense, one of the more uh, difficult to understand, but one of the strongest passages about apostolic authority. Mm-hmm. The idea that Jesus did leave somebody in charge when he went back to heaven. Now, now that I, you and I have had our blinders off, this screams out of almost the whole New Testament. Yeah. The idea that yeah. Jesus left somebody in charge. It, it's, but it's because it, it's implied on just about every page. The very idea of making disciples. Jesus made disciples. Well, a disciple was somebody who was schooled by a master the way a master schools an apprentice, in a certain way of doing things. And when you add this to the fact that Jesus didn't write any books, he didn't leave a body of doctrine or an institute of the Christian religion, he committed his teaching to human beings, to men, to disciples. He left successors. He left somebody in charge. Now, again, that, past, that seems obvious once you begin to look at it. Uh, he's, giving, he's, all, he's constantly giving authority to these 12 fishermen. He's constantly saying, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Uh, he's constantly saying things like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. The word therefore is very important there. Go, you can go because I have the authority to send you. I got it from God. So there's a chain of command there. 
Scripture really, once you begin to be able to see it, has an awful lot about the idea that these 12 men, simple, humble men, were taken and turned into something they weren't before. They were turned into apostles, ambassadors who are the authorized ambassadors, and the only authorized ambassadors to carry Jesus' message forward. And that he gave them this special role and gave them authority to do it, and miraculous powers to do it properly. But at the same time, when I was an evangelical, I remember having questions about this and hearing my teachers flatly deny this. I, after I started reading C.S. Lewis, he was from an Anglican, kind of high church Anglican position that talks about the authorities in this very, I mean, the apostles in this very high authoritative way. And I had questions about it. I remember going to one of my uh, teachers and saying, there seems to be a lot of times in Scripture where Jesus is saying something to the apostles that only applies to them. You know, passages mm -hmm. where we as evangelicals had learned to spread out, you know, yeah, and, and, and apply you, to all Christians. If you do immediately interpret them as implying to all Christians, then it doesn't make sense. Re exactly, like, what, like whoever sins you retain, they're retained. Whoever mm -hmm. sins you... Uh, you forgive, they're forgiven. We, we had to find some way to make that apply to all Christians, when clearly it applies to the Twelve Apostles. Or that the Holy Spirit will lead us all into truth and help us remember everything that Jesus taught. Well, if that's true of every single Christian, then there's something wrong out there. Right. This, <laughs> right. The, uh, uh, you know, obviously Jesus has not, the Holy Spirit has not led every individual Christian into all truth. Yeah. Because there's any kind of, any amount of diversity of opinion amongst Christians. People whom even all, most evangelicals would agree are actually Christians, actually born again, and yet they don't have all truth. Yeah. They've got some error. Okay? But the apostles were not like that. They had no error. They taught only the things that Jesus taught him, taught them, and the Holy Spirit ensured that they would teach it infallibly. And yet when I went to my teacher, my evangelical teacher, they said, no, no, the, the apostles are the same as us. They, they were in, it was great that they had the honor of being first, but that's pretty much all it is. And it was a pretty much a straight denial of the idea of, of apostolic authority, especially any kind of authority that they could hand down or pass down uh, to the next generation. Hey, let me, let me go on on that idea. Let me ask you a question, Rod. Sure. So... This view which you come from, which I remember too, is that you know the apostles were good folk; they were privileged to be the first, but then they're gone. You know, and in fact, my background basically said that everything stopped with the death of the last apostle, miracles, right. um, all that inspiration, everything stopped. Which is an interesting thing because if that's true, then then what about private interpretation anyway? You know, if the if Spirit quit, quit guiding and protecting to make sure everything was true after the last apostle, well, then what do we got left with if we don't also have a church that we can trust? Well, you, you're forced to, to put a really heavy emphasis on the Bible. Yep. Now, obviously, the Bible is the Word of God, so you can never exalt, you know, since God is His Word, you can never exalt God too much, and therefore you can never exalt Scripture too much. But it is possible to try to force the square peg of Scripture into the round hole of some job description that it wasn't ever intended to do. And the idea that Scripture was intended to interact with each individual Christian in an infallible way so that it would lead them into all truth 
is simply demonstrably false. It never was intended to do that job, and it doesn't, because it doesn't work. Hey, Rod, to, say the, to say that Scripture doesn't work in leading individual believers into all truth, even with the Holy Spirit's guarantee, sounds like you're attacking Scripture. It sounds like you're, you, you found some defect in Scripture. We haven't. Yep. But what we have, but nevertheless, we have to acknowledge that if this was God's plan, this can't be God's plan for getting truth to the individual believer, simply because we know for a fact that it doesn't work. It leads to con- uh, at least contradictory understandings of what's essential for Christianity. I mean, that's right. everywhere. And well, not just essentials. On every Christians yeah. disagree on every point to any conceivable extent. To, does, to does the really... point of there are such things as Christian atheists. Yeah, so. wouldn't you agree that there's no one thing? that every single Christian agrees on? Uh, no, no, probably not, no. Not one thing? I, I, I've been asked if there's one thing that every Protestant agrees on, and that, that one thing is that the Catholic Church got it wrong. <laughs> well, there you go. But, hey, Robert, we're going to take, br- take a break, and I sure. uh, just want to pause for a second. When I come back, what I'd like us to do, we'll look at verse 16 and compare it also to verse chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... And then in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people. So in other words, there were these cleverly devised myths that are out there then and are out there now. Let's look a little bit at that when we come back from our break. All right. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am John, joined this evening by Rod Bennett, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Don't miss the good fight this Saturday. Our saint is the great St. Patrick of Ireland, and our future saint is another Patrick. Patrick McChrystal of Human Life International, Ireland. That's The Good Fight, Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Good Fight comes to you live each Saturday only on EWTN Radio. For times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined tonight by... Rod Bennett, Rod, thank you for uh, joining us on the program. You know, oh, one, uh, I was thinking that one thing you had said about this uh, uh, this idea that um, there's there's a uniqueness in these apostles is that one thing you saw in the early fathers, I know, I think it was Clement, uh, that talked about this relationship between God the Father to Jesus, and Jesus sent the apostles, you know, and the apostles established bishops. I think Clement right. was very clear on that. Passing, he lays on it out in a in a way that makes sense to somebody who's. If if we have anybody else in the audience who was in the military, one of the things they teach you in the military is the idea of a chain of command. Mm-hmm. The idea that authority comes from the top and it passes down through a chain of command, and and the, and that chain has to be solid. When somebody steps out and does something on their own authority, then uh, order breaks down even in a, a military operation. And Clement uses uh, language very, very similar to that. God, Christ came with a message from the Father. The apostles come with a message from Christ. 
and the bishops were appointed by the apostles, and so there's an unbroken chain. <laughs> and Clement and some of the other fathers use that word, use, talk about a chain of succession, a chain of custody is sometimes used with important documents, the idea of a chain of custody. And there, that, therein lies the idea that, that Jesus left somebody in charge. Somebody has custody of his teaching. Uh, while we're talking about the, uh, the uh, early fathers on this subject, one of the best passages comes from uh, Tertullian. Let me read just a short excerpt from Tertullian. If the Lord Jesus Christ sent the apostles to preach, no others ought to be received except those appointed by Christ. For note, quoting here Matthew uh, 11, for no one knows the Father except the Son, and him to whom the Son gives a revelation. Nor does it seem that the Son has given revelation to any others than the apostles, whom he sent forth to preach what he had revealed to them. Tertullian here is using Christ's words about no one knows the Son except the Father to strongly affirm that if Jesus, if you're not part of the group of people that Jesus left in charge, then your, your opinions about Christ are not authorized. It's, you, you are a self-appointed prophet. And this brings us back around to uh, to the passage in Second Peter about uh, about the false prophets coming because they're self-appointed. And, and let me okay. say something about these false prophets who we don't know a lot about them. Of course, we uh, more than I would have believed possible. Actually, sure. the the, the active, I think the the people he's talking about here are the Gnostics. I think that's almost certain. But I, I won't put it forward as a dogma. But I think Gnosticism was a, was the first major challenge to. Uh, Christianity, and I think it was going on in the apostolic age. And what I was going to uh, get at, Rob, and see if you agree with this, that often when we see the, the, the phrase false prophets or cleverly devised myths because they're against Christianity or trying to water down Christianity, we immediately have a negative view of them. But the truth is that these men, probably mostly men, though there were some women prophetesses mm. in those times, mm. were right. sincere people. It, the majority of them were doing it because they believed within their own interpretation that they had gotten it right and were therefore dedicating their lives to proclaim what they thought was true. Well, uh, and this is this is why I wanted to, to make the connection to the Gnostics, because that phrase about cleverly devised myths, the, the, I think that it says, the way, it says it the way it does, because the Gnostics were much, as a whole, much more educated people than the apostles and their followers. They were a better class of people than these uh, smelly fishermen and, and the rest. <laughs> right. uh, and so the idea of the cleverly devised myth, these were people with college degrees who were, who were looking at Christianity and improving it in their minds. In one place, uh, Irenaeus, who was, who was our great expert on Gnosticism in the early church says that the Gnostics saw themselves as improvers of the apostles. That is, they found what the apostles had said and said, well, you didn't understand it properly. Yes, we were. it's great that you gave a word from Christ, but it needs to be properly interpreted. And so the Gnostics specialized in, in giving the proper interpretation. And uh, uh, so that's where this passage in Second Peter really begins to bite down, because Peter, in contrast to this, says, uh, when he, he says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. In other words, we don't have a theology about Jesus. We have personal experience with Jesus. We were eyewitnesses, and we were disciples. And this is the reason that uh, 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the voice came, this is my beloved son, we were there. We heard it. So this is Peter saying, we are different than your average run-of-the-mill believer. In other words, there is apostolic authority. And he gets very strong about it. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's the section of this passage that more than any other was the verse I didn't see. (laughs) In other words, here's Peter saying, you guys have got a lot of interpretations. We have the prophetic word made more sure. Why? Because we are the authorized representatives of Jesus. We are the ones who came with a message from Christ. We have the custody. We're the chain in the chain of custody. And, of course, in another place, the, the uh, apostles say he brought the message not to all the people but to us. Mm-hmm. I think it's Paul that says that. He didn't reveal this to everybody but to us. And so for this reason, Peter says, you'll do well to pay attention to this. Keep your, we're Basically, we're your touchstone until the day dawns and the morning star rises. Okay, when the morning star rises in your hearts, that is, at the end, when we're all taken up to glory, then you don't need any interpreters or magisterium anymore. You're one with God. Okay, but until then, you'll do well to pay attention to the fact that we have the prophetic word made more sure. This passage is very strong in the apostles saying this is not a egalitarian, populist kind of faith. It was a real shocker to me, Marcus. One of the greatest moments in my journey was when I reached the point of being able to explain the evangelical gospel in very simple words. Mm-hmm. This was before my conversion. I said, you know, the evangelical gospel really is this. When Jesus left, he left a Bible behind. He wants everybody to open up and open it up and read it. If you open it up and read it, you try to figure it out. He wants everybody to try to figure it out. If you figure it out right, you go to heaven. If you figure it out wrong, you go to hell. And that was, I realized that really is the scheme. No evangelical would, would say it in so many words, but that nakedly is evangelical Christianity. Every Christian opens up the Bible, has a responsibility to open up the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit what it means. If he does this properly, he gets the correct faith, he can save his soul. If he gets the wrong faith, some... Uh, version that's defective enough to be completely wrong, then uh, then he goes to hell. And uh, when it's said in such naked, frightening terms, you see the the horror of it, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, because nobody, everybody with any humility knows that they're not competent to uh, open up the Bible and be right where everybody else in the world was wrong. Well, we're putting a, a major uh, bet on our lives. You know, we've got one eternity and we're putting all of our chips on our own interpretation. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and maybe not just that, but maybe you're putting all the chips not only of yourself, but of your wife and of your children. And exactly. if you're a pastor, you're putting all the chips of your congregation, and, and they're trusting you that you're giving them the clear understanding of what this passage means for their eternity. Right. And that's the danger of private interpretation. I, I was thinking of something you said in a moment ago. Today's the feast day of, of Simon and Jude. And uh, in John 14, Jude is the one that asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? 
Right. And Jesus answers, if a man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Right. And, you know, we have this, this call to make sure that we're loving God uh, and that we know God. And that is planted in John right between the two sections in which Jesus promises the consular to the apostles. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's very clear when you when you say it that way. Uh, you know, I just kind of pounded uh, the evangelical point of view pretty hard there. I'd like to step back for just a second, if you don't mind, sure. and, and give them some credit. And I and I want to do it in this way. Uh, really, when evangelical teachers put forward this egalitarian vision of Christianity when they put forward the idea that you you don't need anybody to teach you that you uh, that the Holy Spirit leads everybody into truth every man's his own magisterium every man's his own pope when they put this forward really to if you if you step back and get the perspective in church history the context is this this message was first preached at a time when authority civil and Christian had been and was being horribly abused yes yes the uh, this essentially this teaching that the apostles had no special role and every man's his own pope is essentially a political idea disguised as theology and in fact it led in a couple of centuries led to the American French revolutions and all the rest of it but uh, uh, but it really is essentially an egalitarian uh, uh, political idea but and like I said, I want to give Protestants credit. They were stifling. Protest- the, uh, the world was stifling under the abuse of authority during this period. Uh, there was no Bill of Rights in in uh, the medieval world. There was no Bill of Rights in uh, uh, in England or any of these other countries where the Reformation broke out. So even a country that can come with legitimately ordained religious leaders who are part of the apostolic succession, we don't want to give the impression that they can never bring discredit to that commission, because they certainly can and were doing. At the time that the uh, Reformation happened, the Catholic people all over the world had been crying out for reform within the Church, for authority to be less abused and less arbitrary. And every time heresy breaks out in the in the Church, it's as a reaction to an abuse that 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 Catholics are doing. Mm-hmm. That, that the Catholic Christian has neglected some point of doctrine, the authorities are not teaching some aspect of the faith that they should be teaching, or they're not living in harmony with what they are teaching. And so uh, heresy is a kind of a impatient, uh, kind of overheated reaction to the fact that there are things that need reform within the Church. And this, I think, was like that. I think... Uh, when Luther and Henry VIII first began to teach against the apostolic authority in the Church, they didn't want to throw the doors completely open to private interpretation. Most, Both of them just wanted to be a better pope, to really. Mm-hmm. Both Luther and Henry, their idea was that they would take over where the pope left off. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they behaved. But uh, And both men were pretty quickly shocked by uh, the fact that the cry that they had raised was taken much further than they were willing to take it by people like the Anabaptists and, and the Quakers, you know, people who say all you need is an inner light. You just need a, a, the inner voice of the Spirit in your heart. You don't even need a Bible. Yeah, especially according Luther to, saw that. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, so they, Luther and, and, and Henry, both immediately began to 
persecute too, uh, Protestants that they thought were too radical. And uh, and so this, you know, the, the cry that was raised by the Quaker or the or the Anabaptist was, you know, no popery, Catholic or Protestant. They didn't want a Protestant pope any more than they wanted a Catholic one. But the result was nobody in charge. And that's certainly the, the spectacle that's discrediting Christianity in the world today. Basically, to sum up what I'm saying here is, I second your emotion, you evangelical listener or you Protestant listener. I second your emotion when you're angry and impatient with the abuses of that time or even the abuses of this time. I certainly am shocked as much as anybody else to hear about the scandals in the church and all the rest of it. But when that emotion has been allowed to run its course a little bit, cool heads both on both sides of the fence have to come back and say, can God's work really go forward in a church where there's nobody in charge, where nobody has the final say and every man is his own pope? Or is that a, a recipe for catastrophe, a recipe for disaster? Because after all, it was Jesus himself in his great high priestly prayer in John 17 who said that whether the world believes his message or not is largely contingent on how unified Christians are. He prayed to the Father, Father, that they would all be one so that the world may know that you sent me. I mean, I think the greatest thing that keeps the world from believing Jesus' message right now is they, on their way to work, they drive five miles to work, and they see, they pass ten churches parading the name of Jesus and know for a fact that all ten of the churches have a different gospel to preach. And that discredits the message of Jesus, makes it hard for them to believe in Jesus, just as Jesus predicted that it would. So, again, with all due credit, the idea of a church with nobody in charge I think all of us, Catholic and Protestant, should be getting to the end of that by now. Let's, and if that's not the plan, if God's yep. plan is not for there to be nobody in charge, then that leads you to the question, who is in charge? Who did he leave in charge, if anybody? You know, it gets you into the proper frame of mind to examine the question maybe for the first time, which brings us back around to the, the verses I never saw. The verse we're looking at. Let's, we're going to take a break, and what I'd like you to do, Rob, during the break is think about this, and then we'll come back to it, that... We assumed that the false teachers here in the background were Gnostics. And so it, it's interesting that his foundation for his argument, for his authority, is their eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus. It's interesting that in First John, the first part of First John, we assume John was dealing with the same kind of false teachers, that again, he uses the same foundation for his witness when he says right, right, right. which have seen with our eyes we've looked upon touched with our hands and what i'd like you to do when we come back there's another verse in john 17 in which jesus said i do not pray for these only but also for those who believe in me through their word in other words right. they didn't see and so we see in this need for trusting the witness upon which we are to build our faith let's talk about that when we get back from the break absolutely you're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined this evening by Rod Bennett, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. 
It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Rod Bennett. Just a reminder that deepinscripture.com is the website that's connected with this program. You can find out all kinds of information about the Coming Home Network International, as well as this program and other uh, programs that EWTN sponsors. That would be a great encouragement to your faith. All right, Rob, what about this? Uh, the, the importance of this eyewitness as the foundation for authority? Well, again, we uh, are back to the idea of how was the message of Christ sent to the world. I think if I were going to address this uh, argument, I would say, uh, examine your assumptions here. In other words, I, a few minutes ago I said the Protestant scheme of faith is that when Jesus went back to heaven, he left a Bible. That That isn't really true, historically. In other words, there's a huge gap between the day of the ascension of our Lord and the time where anybody could hold a complete, finished, authorized Christian Bible in their hands. <laughs> probably at least 10 years after the day of, of the Ascension, before any of it was even written, mm-hmm. and probably about 50 years after that day, before the New Testament was finished, at least 50. And then, before any Christian had a complete Bible with authority, so that we knew which books were definitely inspired and which ones weren't, was probably at least two, two or three hundred years. That's right. So here is a period uh, where Christianity had to get along without the Bible, or certainly without a finished Bible. It's an incredible conception to most of us. The Bible is so central, and properly so, but the Bible is so central that we can't conceive of a Christianity functioning without a Bible. And yet it did. And this was, seems to have been Jesus' plan. So how did it function? It functioned because the Word of God was just where Jesus had put it. That is, in he had schooled it into the hearts of his personally made, handcrafted disciples. He passed it down by discipleship. And it's such an important concept, the idea that, uh, that uh, God entrusted the Church to people. He didn't leave a book. Uh, you know, in contrast to the scheme I, I gave earlier, the Catholic scheme is not that we open up the Bible and try to figure out how to make a church. We go to the to the church and figure out how to understand the Bible. the 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 Bible really is the uh, the child of the church, and not vice versa, as it is in Protestantism. Simply as a historical fact, because the church definitely came first. I mean, the Church was operating and saving souls for half a century before the, the New Testament was even completed. So these historical facts help us to understand what the Apostles are talking about when they say, you know, he gave his message to us and not to all the people. <laughs> there is no private interpretation, but we have the prophetic word made more sure. These historical facts illuminate what, what they're getting at here. They're saying, come to us 
be imitators of me, as Paul says, as I'm an imitator of Christ. Come to me because we're the people that Jesus left in charge. Don't go to the to the people who are outside who didn't know Jesus, who weren't didn't have their hands laid on by him. And then later on, you know, after the apostles were gone, people like Timothy could say, "My, I was ordained by Paul." Uh, you uh, and others, and people like Clement could say, "I was ordained by Peter." So uh, this idea of a chain of custody, you you begin to understand it better. And I think the the passage that we're talking about here, the one that I never saw, I was able to see it because I understood more of the history of what was going on here. When you understand the history of the times, suddenly what Peter is saying makes sense. The people who were devising the cleverly devised myths were people who had a better theology than the fishermen did, and were smarter and more educated than the fishermen. So what does the fisherman say? He says, yeah, that may be true, but I was there on the mountain when the voice came. And that really, I'm just interested, that's so important because it isn't necessarily that these false teachers were claiming or lying and saying, well, we were there too. No. Just claiming to have a better interpretation. Exactly. That, that's and all we was. understand it better. Mm-hmm. And that still goes on to this day. People that have no foundation or connection to the apostolic witness are coming up with very interesting interpretations. But what is the foundation and grounding, the connection of what they're saying with the apostolic witness? And what else can they do if they don't recognize the idea of an apostolic succession, the idea that Jesus left somebody in charge? If you rule that idea out at the beginning, if you dismiss it out of hand without examining the claims of the apostolic church, then what else can you do? Mm-hmm. You have to go, you're forced to go to the Bible and treat it as a kind of an inkblot test. You're, you, you go back and you and whoever has the best sounding interpretation proves that he's right by getting a large number of followers. You know, you it's know? interesting, Rod, back when, uh, when Judas needed to be replaced um, and they decided, okay, how are we going to replace him? They didn't say, okay, who's got the PhD or who can explain it the best? or who's got the best touch on philosophy, what was the criteria for his replacement? God chose him. Well, it was somebody, it says in Acts chapter 2, someone that's been with us from the very beginning. Right. From yes, the I baptism of John yeah. until the very end. In other words, someone that was an eye with Exactly right. And, he, and even Paul, who was did have the college degree and didn't wasn't one of the eyewitnesses in that sense, doesn't go directly to the people and say, Jesus appeared to me in person. He goes to Peter first and the other apostles and gets their stamp of approval. He gets the stamp of approval of those that were with Jesus from the beginning. Rod, thank you for joining us tonight on the program. What a blessing. Thank you very much. And all of you, thank you for joining us. God bless you. See you again next week.